Welcome once again to the Frontlines of Freedom podcast, brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative. My name is Ivan Mawarire, and I am a pastor and an activist for democracy from Zimbabwe, where in 2016, I started a citizens' movement that spoke truth to power, demanding answers concerning corruption, injustice, and poverty. For that, I was jailed, I was beaten, I was tortured, and eventually had to escape Zimbabwe. I have such a belief in fighting for what is right, in fighting for the rights of people, and in particular fighting for freedom. And that's why I do what I do. Today, we're talking to a a very special person. Her name is Berta Valle from Nicaragua. And the reason she is with us today is a very interesting journey, tragic, but also powerfully inspiring. Her husband, Felix Maradiaga, is a very prominent Nicaraguan, as you shall hear. He's a man who has served his country from a very young age. But over the years, as injustice took a grip, as oppression began to happen in Nicaragua, he stood up and put everything on the line that he had to demand that his country be better in how it deals with its own citizens, and in particular, its democracy. Berta Valle, his wife, is with us today to tell us a little bit about the history of Nicaragua, to tell us about the work of Felix, but also what she has taken onto her shoulders to ensure not only Felix's freedom, but the freedom of many, many other people. Berta Valle, thank you so much for joining me today on the front lines of freedom. Welcome. Thank you very much, Ivan, for this invitation. I'm honored to be here to share with the audience about what is happening in Nicaragua and particularly to share the struggles and the hope that we as family members of political prisoners in Nicaragua are facing. So my honor. Thank you. I want us to start off by you telling us about Nicaragua. A lot of people actually don't know about Nicaragua. I mean, You'll be surprised that if you ask ordinary people in America to point to where Nicaragua is, many wouldn't even know. Where is the country? And leading on from there, walk us through a little bit of the history of Nicaragua. I think it's a good point to start. I agree with that. In my experience, travel to different countries, in particular here in the U.S., I found that it's hard to really think about Nicaragua. Some people have this idea of the Nicaragua of the 80s mm-hmm. during the Civil War we had mm-hmm. and the Cold War going on also in Nicaragua. But I may say that it's more than that. So so Nicaragua is this Central American country mm-hmm. located in the middle of the Americas, around 6.5 million inhabitants. Mm-hmm. And we used to be a republic. <laughs> and we used to be because... Sadly, right now, we are facing a dictatorship mm. of a regime, a brutal regime that came back to power. Mm-hmm. So we have this history of dictatorships and democracy in, in Nicaragua. So in 1979, we have a revolution that thrown the Somoza dictatorship that used to be running the country for 42 years. Mm. and. During 10 years, we had a civil war after the revolution because what happened is that the leadership of the 
Sandinistas political party wanted to establish this Marxist-Leninist view being taken from the Cubans into Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. But the majority of the Nicaraguans are actually from the liberal philosophy in in certain ways. So, you know, the civil war started because of that. People wanted free elections, but the Sandinistas party didn't allow. They controlled the army, the militaries. Mm -hmm. And then during the 80s, we also have the Cold War, you know, also taking part in Nicaragua. So during 10 years, more than 50,000 lives were taken because of the violence. Thousands of Nicaraguans flee the country. They went to exile, mainly to the U.S. and Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. And during the 90s, we had this process of peace going on. So mm-hmm. Doña Violeta Barrio de Chamorro became the first women president of Nicaragua. Right. So from there, we start having this exercise of democracy where we had three consecutive periods of free and fair elections, and mainly the liberals won the elections. Right. The problem here is that, and this is important to understand, is that after a civil war, the country was destroyed. Economically speaking, you know, happier inflation, mm-hmm. no access to loans, you know, completely destroyed. So we start all this application of these policies to clean the to clean the public finance, let's say. Let's put it this way. So we have, you know, like all this program being applied in Nicaragua to clean the national finance. Right. And during that time, Daniel Ortega, the same man that was the leader of the 80s, the, the Sandinistas political party's leader, keep also managing the Sandinistas party. Right. And we have this saying in Nicaragua where we, we mentioned like he was ruling the country like underground, you know, so so he keeps certain control of the institution. And, and you know, they have a, a really good team of members of the political party also fighting or trying to take power back. So what happened is that in 2007, Daniel Ortega and the Sandinistas went back into power mm-hmm. using the democratic system. So they got into power through elections. Mm-hmm. And yes, they did win the elections, but with corruption in the middle. So one of the presidents, Arnoldo Aleman, who came after Doña Violeta Barrio de Chamorro, was accused of corruption. Mm-hmm. So he did a pact with Daniel Ortega to lower the percentage of the votes in order to win. So let's say we had a 50% right. needed and they lowered to 38%. Right. And that number was the number of the members of the political party of the Sandinistas. Oh, I see. I see. And the opposition, you know, this liberals didn't agree on going together. So that the position split. And of course, there were the majority, but because they were split, the 38% was enough to win. Uh-huh. And then 
we start seeing how Daniel Ortega and his political party starting, you know, transforming the institution. So the first thing they did is they reformed the constitution. Uh-huh. And because they control the National Assembly and they control the judicial court because of this fact, they um, they created this this reform where he could be reelected indefinitely, right. which is, was something not allowed in Nicaragua. And then the last 15 years, what we have seen is the accumulation of power for Daniel Ortega and his wife, who is the vice president now. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. And I'm going to go. His wife is the vice president now? Exactly. So why this is so interesting to me listening to you is that it sounds like Zimbabwe where I come from, because at some point the former dictator Robert Mugabe tried to make his wife, you know, also the president by trying to draw her into the presidium. But carry on. So, I mean, what has this meant? It sounds to me like this is a complete and full dictatorship in Nicaragua. What is Nicaragua like today? Yeah, so right now, this is the fourth consecutive term of Daniel Ortega. And right now, they control all the institution in the country. So they control the judicial, which is the Supreme Court, the National Assembly, the electoral institution. Mm-hmm. But also, they control the militaries, the police, and they have paramilitaries. Oh, wow. So I basically, see. they control, there's no independence of the institutions. There's completely control of the armed forces. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there is this family, you know, being part of the center of the power. So right, the New York right. guy is the president. The wife is the vice president. All the kids act as ministers. You know, My they goodness. they run programs and they are the one that visit countries such as China to sign the free trade agreement. Are you serious? I am serious. Yes. Natalie, yes. So let's talk about Felix. When I was reading about Felix and doing my research, I discovered that Felix is very young when he gets involved in governance. And this was before Ortega. When he was involved, he was actually the Minister of Defense under President Bolanos. Yes, he was a secretary, the General Secretary of the Minister of Defense. Right. And before doing that, he also worked with Arnoldo Aleman's government, uh-huh. who was this president that made this pact with Daniel Ortega. So before he... He was part of the Office of Reintegration of Ex-Combatants, mm-hmm. which focused on disarming and the desmobilization and reintegration of more than 2,000 guerrillas, Nicaraguan guerrillas. So, so these people were the one that, you know, after the war, didn't have any hope. So he worked for many years in that right. program until he became the General Secretary of the Minister of Defense. And... I know Felix from more than 20 years and I witnessed, you know, his vision of having a country for everyone. You mm-hmm. know, he always mentioned mm-hmm. this of la Nicaragua donde todos quepamos, the Nicaraguan where everybody can live, you know, right. and he has this commitment, full commitment and passion for nonviolence and 
and democracy and human rights. So he was actually a human rights defender before everything. Mm. I found out that he became a youth minister in a church. And that's where he learned his passion for nonviolence and his passion for justice and fairness and equality and compassion, which are things that I identify with because that's my background as well. And I find that amazing about somebody who has those values and decides to then be part of the governance of a nation to try and bring change. Felix found himself in a lot of trouble with the Ortega regime. Tell us about how he was eventually arrested. Why was he arrested? Why did they come after him? I know that he had become an opposition political leader. But before that, he was instrumental in creating some of the most amazing civic society organizations in Nicaragua. But tell me about why Ortega then went after Felix. So after he served in the Ministry of Defense for 10 years, you know, the Ortega came back into power. So he didn't accept to work under this regime. So he created a civil society organization that worked with or used to train youth on nonviolence and democracy subjects. So he did that for many years. Also, he ran as an executive director another think tank called the Institute of Strategic Studies and Public Policy. Mm-hmm. And since 2017, this organization was working on investigations regarding the use of the national budget, regarding how the institution were controlled by the government. And so all this type of subject. So Kelly became a really clear voice against what the Ortega and this political party was doing. And he started warning about a possible dictatorship coming back into Nicaragua. So he was working on that in 2018 is where the massive protests started in Nicaragua. So the regime announced a reform to the social security that lowered the percentage of the benefit to the elders. Mm-hmm. So the elder came out, you know, to denounce this. You know, we didn't have any chance to have a demonstration since Daniel Ortega came back into power. So this was like a really few times where right. people came out to the street. Right. And the way the regime reacted is that they, you know, beat and sent all the police to stop this protest. Mm-hmm. And they start killing students. Oh, so, you know, all the country started very spontaneously to demand the change in the country. And Felix, of course, was part of this movement. And easily he was recognized as a leader because of all his work with civil society and with mm-hmm. students. And then that year in 2018, the Human Rights Organization reported more than 355 people being killed by the police the militaries and the paramilitaries in Nicaragua, where these protests were completely Mm nonviolent. So Felix, you know, he started doing this international advocacy. He started working with the grassroots in Nicaragua. And of course, he was targeted by Ortega. That's why we as family decided in 2018 that the safest way for him to work with Mm -hmm. the grassroots was having us safe abroad. So we were forced to exile with our daughter, who is now nine years old, and Felix's mother. 
-hmm. And he went back to Nicaragua to keep with the movement. Until 2021, where we were supposed to have national elections. So the opposition had this hope that we could transition into democracy again through the national elections. Mm -hmm. So one of the largest movement called La Unidad Nacional Azul y Blanco, the white and blue unity, right. um, nominated Felix as the pre-candidate um, for this election. And that's how he jumped into the politics arena. Mm -hmm. And that year in 2021, when the, well, 10 presidential candidates signed a public letter saying that they were going to support the one that could really win the election. So they agree on going together. And what happened and how the regime reacted is a day in prison. They arbitrarily detained seven of the presidential candidates and all the leadership of the opposition. And that day, that, that year in 2021, we had more than 20 hundred political prisoners, mm. some coming from the 2018 protest to the context of the elections. Wow. It always amazes me how somebody can go and arrest every candidate that is against them and justify it. So Felix Maradiaga is arrested. He is charged. What was he charged with? What did they accuse him of? He was called for an interview at the prosecutor's office for an investigation. And we thought that after the interview, he was going home. But what happened is that his car was intercepted by a police patrol. He was pulled violently out of the car. He was beaten and he was disappeared. And he still disappeared for 84 days and we didn't know anything. Actually, he was arbitrarily detained because there were not an order of arrest when this happened. So lately, we realized that he was being investigated for a crime called undermining the sovereignty of the country. And this law, we call it a legal law because it was actually created recently to stop any type of dis distance uh, in, in Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. So he has been detained since June 8th last year. This is one year and a half. Mm -hmm. This year on February, the trial took place. Also, we saw a very arbitrary process where mm -hmm. he didn't have access to his lawyers. The, the trial was taken in like secret because it was not, anyone was allowed. Only one family member could enter and see, you know, all these arbitrary things. So he was at the end accused and condemned to 13 years in prison. And right now, what we have seen is it's the violation of his human rights and all the people in this prison call it chipotes the same in conditions that are causing them, what the expert mentioned, irreversible damage. Mm. So just for mm. to give you an example, they are held in this cells in completely darkness. They only receive sunlight once a week for 10 minutes. They don't have any type of reading material or writing. Not even a Bible has been allowed to be received by them. They sleep in concrete beds, just like with a tiny mattress. They don't have like blankets to cover. He's with another political prisoner, but they are not allowed to speak to each other. They have to remain completely silent. They don't have access to the lawyers. They are 
under, you know, interrogations. And during all this time, one year and a half, only 10 visits have been allowed. And in our case that we are in exiled, we haven't had not even a phone call, a letter, or a drawing from our daughter. So we see like there is a systematic system to put in torture to our family members. So he lost 60 pounds. I believe right now he gained a little bit more because they have allowed to enter some drinks like milk or yogurt or cookies, you know, so that it seems like it's helping him to to gain a little bit better nutrition in some way. But yeah, so our call as family members is to help us to save the lives of our loved ones mm-hmm. that are arbitrarily detained in, in an affair detention because mm-hmm. they haven't done anything wrong. You know, they were just trying to, you know, fight for democracy in a very democratic way. And mm-hmm. we see this regime just using the law the way they wanted to accuse it and, yeah. and to, yeah. you know, create all this, this trial. Better, I just, I cannot imagine what it's like for you, his wife, his mother, his daughter, knowing that he's sentenced to 13 years, but knowing what he's subjected to daily. I mean, what you've just told us is for people who have lived in freedom all their lives, it's difficult to understand that, that someone can be kept in darkness, sleeping on concrete floor, and that you are only allowed once every, you know, couple of days, you have to stay in silence, there's no food, and then you know that he's losing weight. It's very difficult. And yet through that, you have started to advocate for more than just your husband, Felix, and this is what you are talking about now. Tell me about the work that you have been doing now to represent political prisoners, to stand with and strengthen the families of political prisoners in Nicaragua. Yeah. And here, Ivan, is where faith come in action. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's really hard, but I believe that God, it's in control. Mm-hmm. And that gives me strength. And also, this is what Felix always mentioned to me, that he believes that God has a really clear purpose in our lives. Mm. So after he was arbitrarily detained, I got together with another wife of another political prisoner, also a presidential candidate, uh, Juan Sebastián Chamorro. So together with Victoria Cárdenas, we started this international advocacy. Uh, We were so blessed to have Jerry Genser, this international human rights lawyer, to help us. Mm-hmm. And this process, and we start, you know, denouncing what happened to our husbands, but also at the end, you know, it's our stories are just one example of what is happening to the rest of the families. Right. And when I speak to them, you know, when we share what happened to the rest, you realize that if you have the opportunity of being the voice for others, you know, there's no way of not doing it. This is right. this is what I think. So. So it's been hard, you know, it's very draining emotionally. It's it's a really tough task, you know, to keep talking and to keep, you know, advocating for their release. But also 
you know, I find myself in this position where there's no other, other option. Right. You I know, see. and and before Felix was detained, we spoke. We have a phone call the night before. And he warned me about this. You know, he said, like, probably tomorrow they're going to take me. And I want you to be strong. So, so I agree on that. And, and I'm just following, you know, his conviction of defending human rights and fighting for our country, the country that is supposed to be for every Nicaraguans and not those who are in power. You know, I'm, 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 I'm gripped with such emotion listening to you. My, my whole body, I'm, I'm just, I'm getting goosebumps listening to the fact that Felix called you the night before and said, listen, this is what might happen and gives you a sense of strength, gives you a sense of purpose. I want to ask you something about you and you and Felix. When you look back on your life and your marriage, you know, to Felix, and, and I can see the smile flash across <laughs> your face as I ask that. Tell me some of the some of the best moments, the moments that you relive in your mind over and over again with Felix. Yes. Well, I met Felix so I was very young. And I am from this little town. It's a semi rural town in the north of the country called mm-hmm. Ciudad Arillo. Mm-hmm. And he was from a city that it was like the main city of like that state, right? right so right. we met in a contest. So it's happened that in this city, the greatest poet of Nicaragua was born. His name was Ruben Darío. Mm-hmm. And we celebrate his birth, electing the muse of Ruben Darío. So girls got together in the community and, and we participate, you know, telling the poems of Ruben Darío. And he was invited as a judge. The year that I won. Uh-huh. So that's how we met in the deal. <laughs> and what it was so interesting is that, you know, I didn't pay attention to him. I was like, you know, celebrating that I won. <laughs> so like four days after the contest, there was like a the main day. So we have like a public party in the park of the city. And he stopped to say hi. Mm-hmm. And we spoke for an hour. Right. And so he told me, oh, I was a judge. And I was like, oh, thank you very much, you know. And since that moment, I just got so captivated by Mm -hmm. his charm. But also because I really remember him talking about Nicaragua and his work in the Ministry of Defense. And during all these years, you know, he had been really coherent with, with his behavior and his thoughts. And you know, his clear vision of the Nicaragua that we deserve, you no, know, in mm. freedom and, and democracy with justice. Right, right. So before getting married, um, we got married in twenty in, in two thousand six. Uh-huh. He told me, Look, Berta, I have to say you something. I love you, but um I have to say you that I'm going to be unfaithful to you in one thing. Mm-hmm. And I need you to understand this. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be faithful with Nicaragua to you. And that means that he was clear about, you know, how strong was his passion for Nicaragua and mm-hmm. his, his purpose of life towards the work in Nicaragua. So when he called me 
that night, it reminded me about that fact that he, mm. he always mentioned. So for me, it was like understanding what he meant. He meant that a moment like this was going to happen. Right. So, and I have to confess, Ivan, that some time later, his arbitrary detention, I had this emotional breakdown. Mm. And I still cry for that. Mm. Um, because, you know, as a wife and as a mother, I got to the point where I felt abandoned, you know, because he could have gone out of Nicaragua. He could have decided to, you know, work in another thing. Yeah. yeah. But he decided to stay and to fight back, you know, and to, and to show that this is what the correct thing to do. And I, I got very upset with Felix for some days. But then what happened, I'm so thankful to God because what happened is that I started this advocacy and I started talking to the international community and I started, you know, talking to the opposition and family members. And every time I talked to them and they told me, oh, Felix was here before. Oh, I, I knew Felix because two years ago he came to denounce what happened in Nicaragua. Oh, wow. And I met with a family member whose kids were killed. And they say, oh, we love Felix because he was with us when we were, you know, crying with for our kids. And I just, you know, I just realized how amazing was the job that my husband was doing. And it gave me a lot of proud, you know, and, and now, like I say, like, I understand now that my husband didn't abandon us, you know, he was actually creating the country for our daughter, a country where I could have more opportunities, you know, where we can live free. So it's been a really transformational process for me, personally speaking. And, you know, now it's, it's amazing to see that I come from being a victim to being a human rights defender. And I used to work in media. I was a TV anchor. So it's interesting because usually I call myself Berta Valle, the TV anchor, right? Now I'm Berta Valle, a human rights defender. So through all this pain, I also have find a voice. And, and I can tell you, Ivan, that, and this is something I told Felix, like I feel that our love, you know, is more strong now. Because even when, you know, the last time we, sh we saw each other in person was in March 2020. And since then, we haven't been able to hug each other again. But the interesting part of this is that I feel more close to him than ever. You know, and yes, there are hard days and good days and sad days. But at the end, you know, we are now in the same vision, you know, and understanding why we are in this. And there's why I mentioned that faith is in the middle, right? Because now we understand, you know, a lot of, of what we pray for, mm. you know, and, and at the end of the day, yes, we pray, but we have to act. And that is we God has given us this opportunity to really show love. And now our main goal and our main challenge is to look to those dictators, you know, those people who have caused harm to us 
and tell them, look, we forgive you. But justice has to come. Mm. So it's like a transformation also to our hearts. You know, if you're talking about nonviolence, you really have to feel it in your heart. And my struggle now is to fight against the anger that I have some days. Mm. And the person I want to be to serve my country and to take care of my family. So, yes. You know, but the last 10 minutes of our conversation um, was completely unexpected <laughs> because, uh, you know, now I'm breaking down and <laughs> because you are... Uh, saying so many things that I identify with, so many things I've struggled with personally in my own journey, you know. The parallels to your story and your amazing husband's story and my story are so, so powerful. It's scary, yeah. you know. Right from calling my wife before the arrest, from going back to Zimbabwe after leaving them in safety, not seeing them for years. And... I just want to say to you that you are a, such a special person. Thank you, and you too. The way you have expressed how you have dealt with this, that some days are good days, some days are bad days. The way you have said that we have to look at those that have oppressed us and forgive them, but justice still has to come. And the way that you have looked at your love with your husband, whom you haven't seen since 2020, and you have said you have grown closer to him, even though you have not seen him physically. I cannot tell you how powerful that is, how inspiring that is. And as we come to the end of our conversation, which I have no idea how to end right now, because <laughs> I was not even prepared for tears and sniffing noses and everything. I have to ask you to help me to end this conversation. If you yeah. could speak to people that live with freedom and have had freedom all their lives, what would you say? What would you tell them? Yeah. First of all, um, I will tell them that each one of us is responsible and must take that responsibility to build the country that where we live, that freedom it's not free. And, you know, we repeat this phrase and it's very common, but we have to understand that we have to protect freedom. We have to protect our values of freedom and democracy. And that is something that we do every day in any space you are. People is afraid about getting involved with politics, but this is not about politics. This is about our communities. It's about the schools of our children's the hospitals of our community, the parks, you know, it's about the daily lives. Mm. And we have to get involved, to participate, to, you know, follow up what politicians are doing mm. and not being scared of that. Mm. The other thing is that things cannot be taken for granted. Not in a government um, spectrum, but also in our personal lives, you know, I know now that I live in the U.S. that life here is so, you know, 
there is a routine that captivates us, that captures us. But we cannot take for granted, for example, the fact that we have a family, you know, and we have to work in the daily basis to take care of our family, to take care of this new generation. It's really sad to see how kids are basically growing up by themselves with no guidance and examples and values because there are other things, you know, that can harm them. So every time I think as maybe because I'm a mother, but everything starts from the family, you know, from the center, which Mm -hmm. is the center of our society. Mm. And we that live in freedom here in the U.S. have to take advantage of that. Mm. You know, first in the family, that community, and then, of course, understanding how the main spectrum of policy affects our daily mm-hmm. lives. But yeah, yeah, so that would be, you know, take the responsibility and take actions and build this country that we want to live in. Mm. <laughs> you know, I want to thank you so much for being with us here today and for sharing your nation story with us. Thank you for sharing Felix Maradiaga's story with us. Thank you for sharing Berta's story with us, your mother's story, your daughter's story with us. These are difficult things to talk about. And today you gave us the best of that. Thank you so much, Berta. I appreciate you. Thank you, Ivan. If you've been listening today, you will know that we have literally just spoken with someone who is more than an individual whose husband is in prison. This is someone who represents the true values of freedom, the true values of justice, the true values of compassion, of unity. And some of the things that she said, just right there towards the end, she said, freedom is not free. And that we cannot take the routines that we have of freedom, those routines of family, we cannot take them for granted. Let me leave that with you today. If anything, that you would understand that every single day is a gift and every single person around you is not just another person, but it's an opportunity that you may not have again. Thanks again for being with us here on the front lines of freedom. And do me a favor, share this very special conversation with somebody and we will see you again on the next episode of The Frontlines of Freedom. Bye-bye.